Well, this morning we continue in our series in Hebrews, considering Jesus and who he is and how the author of this letter presents him to us, looking at the, the second part of a section that began back in chapter 4, verse 14, and continues up through chapter 5, verse 10, looking at chapter 5, verses 1 to 10 this morning, and how those verses kind of expound upon the, the ideas, or at least some of the ideas that we looked at last week. So Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, uh, let me read that for us. As always, this is God's very living and active word. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obliged to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Again, thus ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and errant word, and may he write it, upon our hearts this morning. As we come before it, let me pray for us. Our God and our Father, we come before you now again as we are about to hear your word to ask that you would bless this time and to bless your word as it goes out and to fulfill your own promise as we always ask that when it goes out it does not return to you void but instead accomplishes all you purpose for it and is successful in everything for which you send it. For us, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us in great abundance to overflowing, so that our ears might be opened and our eyes might be opened to hear and see all that you would have us learn from your word this morning. And do make it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that we might walk according to what it teaches us. Father, we ask this as always in the precious, matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, as was brought up during the prayer time, and as we know uh, quite clearly, because it's before us, it seems like everywhere we turn, two days from today is the presidential election here in the United States. And to those who follow such things, (laughs) the reaction seems to be pretty common across the board. One of the most bizarre one of the most strange presidential elections in, at least in recent memory. And despite, quite honestly, the wishful scenarios of some for a different outcome, one of the two major candidates is going to be our next president. 
And, and so you look at the bizarreness of this, the strangeness of it, the, the people who are being offered, and it's hard not to ask the question, is this really the best way to pick a leader? Is this really the best way to do things? Is this really the best that we have to, to choose from? And an honest and, and maybe truthful, but also more than slightly cynical answer, as well as the best among all the bad options. That it is perhaps the best among all the bad options should remind us of the sinful nature of those involved in the process. We're Calvinists, after all. We believe in depravity. It affects everything we do. It affects how we choose our leaders. Whether we do it by an election, whether it happens by force, by a conqueror, by a dictator, whether it happens by heredity, a king or queen passing it on to a son or daughter, or even some combination of those, sinful human beings are involved in the process, and it's bound to be tainted by our sinful thoughts and actions. They are such that they are always going to tend toward that which leads to an ineffective outcome, a confused outcome. And just like our looming election, something that's very bizarre and very strange to us. shouldn't be surprising then that when God needed a leader for his people, he didn't let them pick one. He picked one for them. <laughs> he didn't let them choose their leader, their judge, whether Moses or Joshua or any who succeeded them. He didn't let them choose their king, whether it was Saul or David or Solomon or their descendants. And when they needed spiritual leadership, they didn't get to pick that one either. God chose Aaron, appointed Aaron and his descendants to be high priests over Israel. None of these people appointed themselves. None of these people put themselves forward and said, hey, pick me. God chose them to serve him and to serve his people. We saw this in our Old Testament reading, how repeatedly God says to Aaron, I give this to you. I give this to you. No one else gives it to you. Jesus himself, following after that, is chosen by God as our great high priest. And the New Testament reading reinforces that. There in that reading, as Jesus is being challenged in John 8, he, de- he reminds him, I'm not seeking my own glory. If I did, it would be futile. It would be pointless. There is one who glorifies himself, and that's God, the one who judges. He comes rather to serve God, appointed as such, to serve God and to serve God's people and to bring glory to God as a result. Now, the verses we have before us are pretty straightforward. A a comparison between Aaron and Jesus as high priests. Jesus being the great high priest, or great, great priest priest, who's greater than Aaron, who was the first and arguably the greatest of the Old Testament, Old Covenant high priests. It's a simple, kind of straightforward argument, so I don't want to complicate it, uh, just look at it pretty directly. But what's interesting to me as I was looking through this is that along the way, there are some little things that the author says that I think are worth stopping and taking a look at. So what what I 
I'm going to try to do this morning, is let's first look at that kind of simple direct comparison between Jesus and Aaron, and then circle back and look at at least some of the kind of interesting things that are said along the way. All right, so Jesus versus Aaron. Again, like I mentioned in in the introduction, verses 1 to 10 expand upon what we saw last week in verses 14 to 16 of chapter 4. Jesus, our great high priest, who is able to sympathize with us because he was tempted or tested like us. What we see in, in the verses before us this morning is that being able to relate to us is an essential part. It's a vital critical, necessary part of the high priest's job. And what the author is arguing is that Jesus can do this better than any high priest. He is the great, great priest, greater even than Aaron. But also as one whose authority and and position um, is verified by God himself. The verses focus on Aaron in, in uh, the section of verses focuses on Aaron in verses one to four, and then in G- on Jesus in verses five to ten. Again, a very simple structure, a very simple approach. Verses one to four about Aaron tell us that every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act by God Himself. Appointed by God to be a mediator between God and man. He must be chosen from among men. The appropriate mediator between God and men is not an angel or some other bizarre, uh, elevated, grand being. It has to be one of us. And his job is to offer gifts and sacrifices, a phrase that brings to mind all of the Old Testament sacrifices and gifts and offerings that are part of the Old Testament law. And he's to offer those on behalf of other men to restore them to a right relationship with God. And as he does this job, he can relate to those for whom he offers these gifts and sacrifices because the high priest is a sinner just like them. He has the same weakness, argues the author in verse 2. In fact, he has to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And as such, it says in verse 2 that because of this way that the high priest can relate, and indeed must relate to the people around them, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and wayward. Deal gently with those folks. And that's a different little bit of a connotation than just to have sympathy or empathy with them. The idea is the high priest must make a conscious effort to modify and regulate his opinion of those around them because of the experience that he himself has had. So the reality is they are ignorant. (laughs) They are ignorant. If I can say this, moms tell their kids not to, but I'm going to say it anyway. They're stupid people. They're ignorant. They're wayward. They wander astray from God. This is reality. But the high priest, who himself is a sinner, who himself is ignorant, who himself is wayward, 
must modify his attitude toward them so that he can deal gently with him. This is part of the job of the high priest. They deserve judgment. They deserve condemnation. But he is to soften his attitude toward them. The author finishes off his thought about Aaron in verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And then he moves right away in verse 5, comparing Aaron to Christ. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by God himself. Evident in these Old Testament quotations that the author brings to bear, Psalm 2.7, Christ is God's Son, by God's own decree. You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And it's God who makes him a priest. You are a priest forever, quoting from Psalm 110, verse 4. Hebrews is the only book to quote from that verse of Psalm 110, which is quoted, that psalm was quoted all over the New Testament. Hebrews focuses on verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. An idea repeated in verse 10 that closes off this little section. He's designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It's our first clue that we're getting in this letter that Jesus is a different kind and a greater kind of high priest than Aaron was and Aaron's descendants. We're going to get to that in chapter 7 of this letter in quite great detail. Verses 7 and 8 remind us how Jesus is able to relate to his people. First, because he was one of them. The priest has to be among men. It says that he lived in the flesh, in the days of his flesh. The author is referring back to uh, specifically Jesus' earthly ministry. But when he was in the flesh, in those days of the flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And although he was a son, in verse 8, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He suffered, he prayed, he poured out his heart to God. He cried out, he, he shed tears because of what he experienced because of what he suffered, because of the things he saw and learned, was tested by and tempted by as he walked this earth. This suffering, this learning obedience, these cries and these tears show Jesus to be exactly the kind of high priest we need, one who can relate to us as one who's been tested like us, referring back to Chapter 4, verse 15. That suffering has a general sense, but if you look at verse 7, there's kind of a a more specific reference even to Jesus' night before his crucifixion in the garden. He's appealing, says the author, to him who is able to save him from death. And that recalls to our mind the prayer of Christ, sweating blood, great passion, great anguish. If it were possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but yours 
be done. He's obedient to the Father, and it causes great pain and anguish and suffering. The difference, though, between Jesus and any other high priest, if we go back to chapter 4, verse 15 again, is that unlike any other high priest, he doesn't have to make offerings for himself because he has not sinned. Rather, he offers himself. Again, the author is going to say more about this later. But as a great high priest who can relate to his people, therefore Jesus can deal gently with them. And so he goes to sacrifice himself and become the source of eternal salvation to everyone who obeys him. These earthly high priests, Aaron and his sons, must repeatedly, over and over and over again, offer sacrifice for sins because they have to keep repairing the broken relationships caused by sin between God and man. Jesus offers himself once. And so the salvation that he offers is eternal. It's done. It's over. It's completed. The relationship with God, therefore, is restored eternally. Once and done. Cannot be taken away. Cannot be interrupted. The relationship cannot be broken between God and those who trust and obey Jesus. To all those who take up their cross and follow him. And so again, it's a relatively simple comparison. Jesus is a great high priest, greater than Aaron. And as we will see in the weeks and months to come, of a very different order than Aaron himself compared to that ancient figure, Melchizedek. So again, a pretty simple argument, I think, a pretty simple presentation. Jesus is clearly a better, greater high priest than Aaron. But again, some interesting things said along the way, and I just want to touch on a few of those and and reflect on them together. The first thing that stands out for me in this passage is how we see portrayed, I think, in a very unique and wonderful way, again for us, the sovereignty of God and his providential care for his people. The providential care of God has the goal of taking care of his own people. Think about God choosing kings for his people. Think about God choosing a high priest to care for his people to restore that broken relationship, to deal gently with them. And then God, who goes even above and beyond that and permanently establishes for us Jesus as a greater high priest. Without that mediation, without that go-between, our relationship with God would be irretrievably and permanently broken. But God is the one who is offended. God is the injured party. God is the one who's been rebelled against by stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. Instead is the one who goes out and finds the perfect solution to take care of that hard-hearted, stiff-necked rebellion. He goes out and appoints a method to take care of it. First, 
the complicated Old Testament, Old Covenant system, but then in fulfillment of what that portrays and looks forward to, sends his own son. And now because we have this kind of a mediator, as mediator as we saw last week, now we can, we can boldly go into that holy place, into the presence of God himself, and receive mercy and find grace. So we can't let the idea creep into our minds, as I think it, it, it can so often happen, is God's this big, powerful deity kind of removed from us up in the sky somewhere. Now, indeed, he is mighty and holy and just and righteous and good. But this sovereign God who rules is also our Father who loves and cares for us. It's interesting to me in reflecting upon this that that God appoints rulers only for his own people. He doesn't appoint rulers for any other nation, for any other people. Now, providentially, he does govern the affairs of all things and ultimately is behind the ascension or rise of any ruler or king in history. There's no doubt about that, but that's part of his general, sovereign, providential rule over all things, over all people and all their actions and behaviors. But it's a unique, special loving, caring act of God for his own people to choose and to appoint for them their own rulers. Something to think about as we approach an election here in our country. God doesn't pick the U.S. president for the benefit of U.S. citizens. Or he doesn't do that for Argentina or Russia or South America, or South America is not a country. (laughs) Any region, anywhere. Pick a country, China, Uganda, Japan, India. He doesn't do that for any group of people except us. (laughs) That is remarkable to me. The providential, sovereign care of God for his people and for their particular special benefit whether the kings and priests of the Old Covenant or far better, as we're learning in this book, Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, a king and a high priest for all who repent and believe in him. Something to think about as we all go to the polls on Tuesday to vote for a president, that we already have a better leader, a far superior leader. Think about this. No president that we could elect. Imagine your ideal president, whoever that might be. That person cannot restore your relationship with God. Cannot do anything to bring you into a closer relationship to God. Powerless. Only Christ can do that. And we have that king and we have that high priest. God does this for his people to restore and repair the broken relationship between him and and them. I'm also impressed and and have thought about the the almost passing reference in verse 2 that um, already mentioned, that the high priest is able to deal gently with those that he mediates for because he shares the same 
weaknesses. And the author is kind of getting to the point there that Jesus can deal gently with us because he's been tempted and tested like us. That, to me, is incredibly comforting and incredibly encouraging. It gives more reason, and I I think this is why this section builds upon the end of chapter 4. It gives us more reason to, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace whenever we need it. But it's also a lesson for us to apply in our own lives who are supposed to be molded into the image of Christ, to copy Him, to be like Him. Because let's be honest, (laughs) how often are you surrounded by ignorant, wayward people? How often as you look around in your life, your family, church maybe, your work, your neighbors, society in general, what a bunch of idiots! We think that. And, you know, sometimes we have a right. They are kind of foolish. But what, what's so remarkable here is that even though God has that right to think that way about us, and this is what strikes me about, this isn't just sympathy. It's not just empathy. It's a conscious effort to modulate our thoughts and opinions of others so that we can deal gently with them. If this is what God did does for us in Christ, how could we do any less for those around us, as foolish and as silly as we we think they may be? That impressed itself upon my heart and mind this morning because, quite honestly, we're just as foolish and ignorant as they are. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. But then what does it say in verse 7 of that chapter, right after? Jesus became a sheep, a wayward sheep like us, to suffer and die in our place. So think about dealing gently with others, because God has dealt gently with us. And if we're not inclined to deal gently, it's a sign that God needs to do more work in our hearts, or maybe we're taking for granted the fact that he's dealt gently with us. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we are known as a people, if we are known as a church that deals gently with others? That's hard. Because that judgmental, condemning attitude is so, it's just right there waiting to burst out of all of us. Instead, we are to deliberately pull back so that we can deal gently with those around us. Also struck by the idea that the the priest does not take honor for himself. He does not take that job. He does not appoint himself to it, but instead he's chosen or appointed by God. We can talk about election in regard to that. But the idea um, that they don't, no one runs for the job of high priest. (laughs) It's silly. Now, the author's probably taking a little dig at his own time, Uh, at the Jewish high priests who lived at that time who were political appointees by the Roman authorities who did jockey for the job and did so because it gained power and and wealth and influence and prestige for them. Um, But in a broader sense, he's reminding us that the only legitimate high priest is the one appointed by God himself. Again, emphasized by Jesus in John chapter 8. Just a little reminder at least for me, and I hope for you as well, 
that we're not to be people who seek glory. And I, I think, and I've talked about this, I think, with some of you before, one of the flaws of our political system is that it seems like the only people who are going to run for president are those who have the ego big enough to think they can do the job, which is kind of remarkable. Who, who sits down and thinks, yeah, I could run this country? That takes a lot of, that takes a lot of ego. And our system seems to promote and encourage the kind of egotistical thinking. This is the American personality, if you will. I, I got admonished recently for not caring as much as I should about what board members should think of me at my job. You should care what other people think of you. You should care their opinion of you. That's American. Be somebody. Go out and win friends and influence people. Blaze your own path of success. Network. Find friends who can help you succeed and grow and prosper in life. That's a dangerous attitude, though, for the church of Jesus Christ. That desire to be somebody, that desire to be influential. And in my experience, as I've observed it in different churches and in different leaders, it almost always, and I can't think of an exception, it leads to a fall in some way, shape, or form. As soon as we try to be somebody, as soon as we try to win glory of some kind for ourselves, bad things happen. It's not our job to look for glory, to look for influence, to appoint ourselves to positions of power or leadership. Now, we have to take into account what Scripture says elsewhere, that to desire to be an elder in the church is a good thing. Um, to desire to lead and serve God's people. But there is a biblical process for that to happen where we just don't appoint ourselves to that task. And so it makes me think, not only should we as believers not seek position and glory and power, but when we do come to the point where we have that opportunity in that biblical process to select our leaders, who are we looking for? I want guys who are going to deal gently with me. I want people who've been through what I've been through. Who've been tested and tempted and tried and so can deal gently with God's people. Those are the kind of people who can help me through my sins, through my trials and through my struggles in life. And then a final thought from verse 9. I love this picture that the author presents of Jesus being the source of eternal salvation. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Think about that word salvation. We can't elaborate on it fully here. In fact, I preached a whole sermon series that lasted months on the fullness of salvation. But think again of how we kind of couch that idea, the, the breadth, the width, the length, the height of salvation in Jesus Christ that begins with repentance and faith, looking to him for the solution to our sins that have broken our relationship to God, resting on his work for us, receiving it by grace and through faith alone, 
Death is now defeated, and we have the promise of eternal life in Him. But that's just the basics of salvation, if you think about it. And in fact, the author is going to take us on a little parenthesis here in the rest of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, where he, he, he's going to tell us, it's time to move on. Time to move on from simple, basic things and get into deeper things. Salvation is founded upon repentance and faith, that happy exchange of our sin for Christ's righteousness, but it doesn't end there. It encompasses every single area and aspect of our life. One of the popular phrases around now today, and I think it's appropriate, that expresses this, the gospel changes everything. Every thought, every word, every action, every part of our whole being, everything about us should reflect the salvation that we have from God and Jesus Christ, our great high priest. The source of that, the fount, if you will, the the fountain of life. Jesus is the source of that. Every possible thing we have that's of any worth comes from Jesus. We have, of course, salvation from sin and death. We have eternal life in the future. But we also have that different life now as new creations in Christ. Bold access, as we talked about last week, to the mercy and grace of God. We have peace. We have joy that no one else has. Comfort that no one else can understand. Confident assurance of God's protection and blessing and favor toward us and his direction and providential guidance in our lives. No one else has that. We have that from God in Christ. Gratitude and humility, and of course, dealing gently with all those ignorant, wayward idiots around us. We get wisdom instead of ignorance. We get a clear, straight path instead of wayward wondering. And so if we stop at repentance and faith, we shortchange salvation, and we can't do that. Salvation given to us by God, the source of it in Jesus himself is much more precious, much more deep, much more profound. And the author is telling us that Jesus, of course, is the source of that eternal salvation. The source, and as we will sing, the fount. The fount of every blessing that we experience in this life. Aaron and his sons could not do this. But Jesus has done it. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump cannot do this. Don't look to them or any of their cronies for happiness, comfort, joy, peace in this life because they cannot give it to you. In fact, no president has been able to do that in the 240 years of U.S. history. But Jesus can. Jesus has done it. And Jesus does do it. 
Indeed, come, <laughs> and come soon. Come, thou fount of every blessing. Tune our hearts to sing your praise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what an incredible gift you have given to us in Christ our Savior. Let us not forget that precious truth and look to other things for joy and peace and comfort and assurance in this life. Remind us that all that we have that matters is ours from you in Christ. And not only is that all that matters, but it far surpasses anything that anyone else could give us or promise to give us. Let us find our satisfaction, our peace, our hope, our joy in you and in all that you have given to us. We ask that you would do this, Father, in the precious, wonderful, holy, superior name of Jesus Christ, our High Priest, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.